Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. Strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And, and then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to jail. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? It's far away. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? Is this happening in America? The American dream has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. If you're wondering what the backdrop is tonight, it is the continuation of the IRP-5 and our journey that we have been uh, delayed somewhat, uh, but now we continue and reach towards the conclusion of the injustice suffered by the IRP-5. We are now, I believe, at the entrance of trial since the last time we have done this part of the segment of the show, we continue tonight the injustice of the RP5. Go with us on this journey. This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, 
Kenrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Samson Riddle, William Williams, Clinton Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Tanique Wright, and the entire AJC Radio team as we continue now as a push towards the conclusion of the journey of the IRP-5. And as I said uh, in the introduction, we are right now at the point of trial uh, actually going on. Uh, and we're going to get through this. And as we uh, continue to push this story out all over social media platforms, which we will do at the conclusion, that if you're able, if you want to hear the entire story from beginning to end, uh, all of these uh, shows will be available to you. And uh, make no mistake about it, the importance of this story in this injustice getting pushed out is no less today than it was when we started the series. It is equally as important tonight that we continue and bring it to a conclusion and let the folks of America judge for themselves of the injustice suffered uh, by the IRP-5. Samson, your thoughts? Well, I mean, without the, the complete story being told here, I mean, right now we've been de delivering fact after fact. You know, I mean, you've heard the men around the table talk about everything they experienced from being slighted uh, by companies they were going to do business with to, you know, the illegal raid, search, and seizure of, you know, property at their business, being wrongfully convicted, that, you know, the, the travesty that happened to them in the courtroom. So as we, you know, begin to wrap this up, I mean, ultimately we're going to put it back out there, like you said, for America to decide, okay, were these men wrongfully convicted in their opinion? We know for a fact that they were because the fact is these gentlemen broke no laws. They did nothing wrong except for do what any common patriot would do and say, oh, my country came under attack. Let me do something to say that it can never happen again on my watch. And instead, these men were vilified. They were wrongfully convicted. They were persecuted at every turn. And ultimately, they had nearly a decade of their lives stolen away from them. No, without question. And uh, look, it's important that we get the word out. Uh, and this has been a long time coming. And we have been on this show on several different shows addressing the issues suffered by the IRP-5. Uh, and we're going to continue that tonight as we go forward. William, your thoughts? Well, it's true, you know, what Samson was saying. The story has to be told. Everybody has a, a story. And if you let them define who you are, if you let the system define who you are, um, it's a wrong thing. I mean, these guys were victims. And what it is is they have a right to tell their story. The people need to understand how the system could turn, how this you know, it's really sickening, but how it really turns on and vilifies. And basically, like Samson said, you lose eight years of your life because you took a stand. You said, listen, we're going to do something good. We're going to build a quality software that this nation needs, still needs to this day. This story is huge, and people need to understand it, and that these guys lost, their, lost eight years of their lives. Their family was impacted all because they were trying to do something good for this country and as we approach you know we again we do the, every year we do a september 11th story and we talk about where are we today we're no different today these guys are actually here they 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 were set out on a mission to do something for this country and uh you know with the software and you know the system came after them and I'll tell you what, uh, we are going to get to the bottom uh, of all that was suffered here. Uh, we've lived it. We've been through it. And uh, 
if for any reason there's folks out the naysayers that think this is something that just loses steam, uh, I can tell you right now, injustice doesn't do that. Uh, it continues to burn in the hearts of those that suffered uh, that suffered the injustice, and we're going to deal with that. So uh, feel free, folks, to dial in 646-200-0628. We're going to have comments or questions for our panel, the IRP5 themselves. They are here in studio, uh, and we're going to take it from there. Ladies and gentlemen, hang on. We'll be right back. This is Agency Radio, the continued journey of the IRP5 and its road to injustice. This is AJC Radio. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. 
The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders, 30% were property violators such as thieves or those convicted of fraud, 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. As we have uh, said in the opening, this is the final push to the journey uh, and completing the journey of the RP5 uh, and their journey to injustice. We now, I believe, David, are at the actual beginning of the trial. Or we, I'm trying to recall, I believe, did we do opening statements? What was said, what was stated by both sides? Yeah, we talked about yeah, we talked about that. Uh, the theater's open is what it is. It's not. Yeah. Uh, you can't take anything seriously that you go into a trial. You got the theaters with the big time Broadway actors or the prosecutors, defense attorneys, and things of that nature. Uh, and the judge is uh, she's an actor too. Um, uh, it is a show, and that's what we experience it as a show, uh, a sadistic show, but a, a show nonetheless. So. Yeah. Uh, as we move through opening statements, uh, uh, as we discussed in prior shows, we were unable to even even give a uh, opening statement. Uh, our character was on trial. Uh, they wouldn't allow anything to be said or reference to your character. Judge claimed your character was, wasn't on trial. So as we uh, begin to move in, the government uh, starts its case, start to present uh its case, which uh, in essence was uh, the criminalization of of, uh, of debt, which was uh, right, uh, which was uh, affirmed by a, a independent judge, is what was going on here. So, the the entire process started um, tainted uh, because you're dealing with actors; you're not dealing with authentic people. Um, or you're not dealing with the true facts of the case, which uh, at one point in opening arguments, the prosecution, the government of the United States, has the, the leeway, latitude, if you will, to put your character in question during the opening statements. Right. Well, the whole thing but, is about your character. But you uh, guys were not allowed to, when it came time for you guys to present an opening statement, to say, look, this is what we are about. We come from this background. We come from this. We come from education. We come right. from hard work. The judge allows none of that in to counter the prosecution of the government of the United States case or description of the IRP-5. Yeah, just by virtue of... They're bringing charges, criminal charges against you and said you defrauded someone. Which is character. It's all character. In other words, you lied uh, on the phone. You lied via email. uh, And you're here because you lied and somebody uh, uh, that they claim lost money, businesses lost money because of your lies. If you're lying, your character's on trial if you're being accused of lying. I would say so. And the fact that the, in most cases, opening arguments are not objected to. It is a theory of a case uh, that's, for, that's really on both sides. You have the prosecution presenting their theory. You have the defense presenting their theory equally. Uh, and I believe intent was something, as the trial pursued on, was not allowed to be given as far as the definition of intent. Is that correct? Not a specialized uh jury instruction uh, throughout trials obviously uh, we were pro se so mm-hmm. which means we were representing ourselves and 
when we get to that point, we'll discuss more why we wanted intent. Your, uh, what you'll find out throughout the trial is that both the judge and the prosecutor, they really want the jury to be confused. Uh, and any effort to clarify them, uh, clarify anything that is in favor of the defendant uh, was met with uh, a barrier was put up and it just wasn't allowed. We're not going to allow the jury to truly understand what uh, what their responsibilities are, what are the elements of the crime. We're going to talk to them. Uh, you got people that are, we had guys there that on the jury that, that did, does landscaping for a living. Uh, and others, uh, elementary school teachers, they don't understand business. They don't understand even some of these more technical areas of the law or how to put all this stuff together. But this happens in courtrooms every single day. Uh, certainly not the best justice in the, in the world when jurors in many instances and a lot of instances don't even understand what their responsibilities are and that they really need to hold to their convictions and not be swayed by other people. Well, the, the critical part of that is is that uh, if these are supposed to be, which is a joke, uh, jurors of your peers um, a person that and there's no disrespect to whatever livelihood you have to make money and to take care of yourself but if you don't work in the world of IT staffing companies to understand uh, that this is not anything that took place here that was in violation of law uh, it is protocol uh, and then when you have a, a witness that's able to testify to that fact he's not allowed to testify so and remember, a juror of your peers is just really, in the court system, is just somebody who's breathing. So Which is a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. And, and another thing you have to remember, that their, their core of this case was conspiracy. So conspiracy, you don't even have to show that there was any laws broken or anything broken, but that it looks like you guys are planning to do that. So intent, intent is very important because you're trying to say that the government's saying he knows what you were thinking and that makes, because you were thinking of something, that makes it a crime and that you were conspiring. So it's an act of premeditation. It's an act of premeditation. So that's the problem. So they know they, so a lot of times, especially if you speak to a lot of attorneys, when they put a conspiracy case on you, there is no case. It should get because you, they, they can't prove you're planning anything. And there's no, right? and there's no crime committed. Committed. So yes. what they're saying is, since we don't have an, an overt uh, crime, we'll say what you were thinking about doing or planning to do it. And these are the steps that further that that process of the conspiracy. So, as David was saying, this is why they want to confuse the jury, because if the jury starts realizing, you know, but what, well, what if they do that was illegal? Well, nothing, but they were planning to do it. You know, that you, that's you, that's the case. But how do you try? Okay, so I go in the the grocery store, going to buy some groceries, but somebody says, well, you were planning actually to run out of the store with those groceries. Do you know how insane that sounds? Because there's no foundation to support it. But, but Mont, that's the absurdity of it. That's why we're, it, the confusions around that, to David's point, it's all a show at theatrics so they can get and manipulate the law. and do. It's not about justice. It's not about the truth. And when you try to explain your truth, they always say, it's my truth. Well, we were never given a chance to acknowledge and say what the truth is because you had all these shenanigans Look, going on. But the issue is, which is so ridiculous to me, 
conspiracy but to, to that point is correctly that's what they say you were conspiring okay well you were you were planning to do this it's look even the act of premeditation of murder is stronger than a conspiracy theory because you, an act of premeditation you see steps that are factual that are in place i went to, somebody went to the store they purchased the, the weapon they purchased ammo they maybe posted something on Facebook saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. In this case, well, the conspiracy was makes it so difficult. You have to get into the mind of the individuals, which is impossible to do. And then you have pending business coming to the IRP-5. Pending business, negotiations, talks about the software, all of that with counter the, the theory of the prosecute of the government's case of a conspiracy because none of those factors with the business pending all these things happening would not be in place if it's a conspiracy it just doesn't, it doesn't add up and it doesn't take you to have to go to law school to figure that out that's common sense Samson no just sitting here looking uh, listening to everything and it's like you know for anybody that's ever done IT or even like you know hear about stuff like this, like you have to have capacity to do something, then you have to have intent, and then you, that's when you actually have a threat. You know, so basically, by the by, what we're hearing from the law right now, anybody that has a driver's license and a motor vehicle, you could be convicted of conspiracy to to commit vehicular manslaughter. If you if you actually think about that the way that these gentlemen were approached and convicted of, of a crime if you ha if you have the full capability you have a driver's license you have a car you're you you're you're, you're going to be committed convicted of committing or conspiracy to commit vehicular manslaughter because it's there but the fact is well i don't have the intent to do this and that's where intent just i mean it's a little bit of an absurd absurd example but the fact of the matter is is that's how absurd this entire case was Oh, you, you intended to do this. You intended to defraud them. Why would If I intended to defraud somebody on anything, why would I make a viable product and actually go out there and seek to sell it to other people? Why would I have a demonstration to show you that this product works, that it is viable not only for you know your business, your organization, but it's also viable to create extensive amounts of capital and pay off any, you know, any debts these gentlemen may have incurred? The fact is, is like we said time and again when looking at this case, these gentlemen were railroaded. Bottom line, it was known from the start that they were gonna, they wanted to go after these guys. They wanted to go after their software because the fact is, they didn't want to pay for the software. They wanted to get it for free, and you know, whoever has to go to jail for however long, we don't care. This is what we want. Absolutely, Dennis. And how do you? How do you uh, prove intent? And and you think about these guys. I mean, these guys were out uh, creating software. Uh, they were they were doing it for a reason. And of course, you know, debt was incurred. But this, I'm telling you, this this injustice was so egregious. It was so racially motivated. It was so uh, you know, it, it didn't have nothing nothing in this case. Period could have. Could the uh, prosecutors have shown intent? They could not have done it. It's impossible. But it just shows you that our justice system is so ate up, 
is so, I mean, God, it's so scurred to the left. It's just, no matter how you look at it, what happened to these guys was just totally wrong. And it started from the beginning. When you don't let uh, 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 the defense defend themselves, when you take uh, evidence and you don't allow that evidence in, automatically you're creating an atmosphere that no matter what they do, they're going to lose. And then when the judge is on the prose- the prosecution side, I mean, instead of being a referee, uh, actually being a player, it-, it tells you that this justice system is just so wrong. And no matter how you look at it, no one could ever convince me that these guys did anything wrong. What these guys were doing is just, like, like you said, we incurred debt, period. Who doesn't incur debt? And then is our current debt against the law? I don't think so. Well, we had, Go ahead, David. It brings you to a point. In the U.S. criminal justice system and uh, the way the jury system works, uh, first, uh, you got to be aware that you're guilty to a proven innocent. That is a immutable truth in the U.S. criminal justice system, irrespective of what they say. All a, jur- all a prosecutor really has to do is make it look like you may have been doing something wrong where the jury says, well, that just doesn't sound right, but the evidence doesn't show that. Well, all they have to do is is highlight something and, and spin something. Now, in essence, doesn't that look bad to you, ladies and gentlemen? But none of that is a crime. But to get a conviction, that's really all the prosecutor has to do is to get jurors to say, well, it looks like something may have been going on, something I don't truly understand. I really don't understand what's going on, but something looks bad to me. And all the prosecutor has to do, cherry pick through a few things, make you look uh, like, like, like something bad was going on, even though nothing was bad going on, but maybe it was, so I'm going to vote guilty. That's the U.S. criminal justice system. No, absolutely right. That's something that, Dave, you got some thoughts? Well, when you look at all of this, again, like David said, it's about painting this picture to the jury about maybe something happened. Maybe this, maybe that. During um, Mr. Barnes, Kendrick, Kendrick's uh, opening statement, he said, we, the government is going to show you emails, but without the context, these emails can look damaging. I mean, it's very easy for somebody to appear to be doing something if you don't see the surrounding information. I mean, a good example of that is there was a kid that was posting back and forth to his friends on Facebook quotes from a video game that he was playing. Well, what happened is they decided that he was threatening to shoot up a kindergarten. They went to his house, didn't find any guns, never found anything of a threat. He showed them the video game. They didn't care. He was in jail for a week before they let him out. Again, there was no context around it. So here they they look at everything that the picture the government paints and the jury goes, something must have been going on here. I mean, we saw when money was being talked about, jurors that were making minimum wage, like there's no way somebody could make that kind of money. You could see the look on their face and that automatically turns them against you because they're not really a jury of your peers. Oh, absolutely right. Uh, Clint? 
Yeah, I was thinking uh, the government has all kind of tricks that they uh, that they do in the courtroom, and one of one of them is something w when you're in a criminal case, uh, they start out saying it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but then they they break that down and and throw in what they call preponderance, which is the standard of a civil case that uh, well it looks like this. So they, they take away, they introduce hearsay, they, they take away the standard of uh, proof that the government has to come against you with and break it down to basically gossip. And so the judge, when the judge is saying uh, we must rule in, in, in the light best favorable to the government, between those two things of breaking down the standard uh, to something called preponderance or what it looks like, and then in the light most favorable to the government, and then if they take away your ability to submit evidence to the jury, anybody could be uh, railroaded into a, uh, into a guilty verdict. It's unbelievable. And the, uh, Tanique, you found something? I was just gonna say online, when you put in what's the definition of a jury of your peers, it says that uh, basically it's somebody in the community and they said it sounds a bit vague but that's because it is what it means is that you have a right to be tried by a person a human you don't have a right to be tried by somebody with your same income uh, your same uh, occupation race or sex it just means that you have a person that will sit on the jury so I just wanted to also say somebody had made the comment about somebody being minimum wage, and I looked it up. In 2020, the average salary was uh, $19.33 an hour. So if you, a person who makes that, you, to them, $100,000 is rich, right? Because they're looking. So uh, when you look at that, a person who makes that limited amount is not going to think um, that in big dollars, they're going to think it's impossible because they're looking from the scope of their their own, I guess, eyesight is what I'm trying to say. And let's uh, let's give a little background on on this. We were developing the RP five. We're developing software that would be used by the FBI uh, agencies like the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, NYPD. Uh, let's put that in context. At trial, the guy, uh, a DHS official said that they would spend a billion dollars on that kind of software. Uh, we, in essence, had, uh, were in debt developing software into the tune of like three and a half, four million dollars. The government rounded it up to five million, tried to put all the all uh, interest and late payments and all this other type of stuff. Uh, so basically what Tanika is talking they're looking at a few million dollars in debt that were that had not been paid yet and so the government comes into to court to spend that well why didn't they pay the few million in debt well in the software business you can run up a few million dollars of working on a major a billion dollar type pro software project that would sell for a billion dollars you could run that up uh, in essence in, in a few months and without it, without issue, even though ours were, were spread out over a period of time because uh, we were going back and forth to the government. So the government pretty much used the fact that no, a lot of the debt had not been paid as a uh, to raise the eyebrows. Look, these guys had all of this debt. They hadn't paid any yet. So there was something nefarious going on. They were deceiving somebody. Why did why did they? 
why did these companies extend them that much money uh, towards staffing and and pay their employees and stuff like that? So that's what you're dealing with, and that's how the government was able to uh, make you look bad because you hadn't paid debt your debt yet, and said, "Well, there's a reason you had this much debt that you hadn't paid because you were committing a crime." Absolutely right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, guys, and get on with the trial. And from here, where things really they fell off the rails long before they entered entered into a courtroom because they should have never been charged. We're going to deal with that and what happened in opening statements as day one, day two, day three began to proceed in the journey of the injustice of the RFP5. This is ABC Radio. Columbine. Virginia Tech. Tucson. Aurora. Fort Hood. Oak Creek. Newtown. 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 How many more? How many more? How many more colleges? How many more classrooms? How many more movie theaters? How many more houses of faith? How many more shopping malls? How many more street corners? How many more? How many more? Enough. 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 Demand a plan. Right now. As a mom. As a dad. As a friend. As a husband. As a wife. As an American. As an American. As an American. As a human being. For the children of Sandy Hook. Demand a plan. No more lists of names. It's not too soon. It's too late. Now is the time. Before we all know someone who loved someone on that list. No more lists. No more. Who they might have been. No more. If we had just done something yesterday. It's time. We can do better than this. We can do better than this. It's time. It's time. It's time for our leaders to act. Demand a plan. Right now. Right now. You! Demand it! Enough. 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 Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silenced, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. 
you had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're gonna write you a run-on sentence, on average, 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-kind, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect, with the smallest slip up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're gonna join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? This is an emergency yeah, line. Uh, large with half pepperoni, half mushroom. Um, you know you've called 911. This is an emergency line. Do you know how long it'll be? Okay, ma'am. Is everything okay over there? Do you have an emergency or not? Yes. And you're unable to talk because... Right, right. Is there someone in the room with you? Just say yes or no. Yes. Okay, um... It looks like I have an officer about a mile from your location. Are there any weapons in your house? No. Can you stay on the phone with me? No. Uh, see you soon. Thank you. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials has exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. 
and it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or a driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. Feel free to dial into the show if you have comments uh, for our uh, our panel, 646-200-0628. Part of that panel being the IRP5 uh, in studio tonight, uh, as they always are. But if you have questions for them uh, about this process or you just want to make a comment, feel free again to dial 646-200-0628. You can also uh, reach out online uh, with our research team as well, if any comments you might have. Uh, in regards to this case. Um, so as we were talking during the break, uh, it was uh, told that Judge Christ, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, uh, at the time of opening statements, uh, a couple of the guys were trying to speak to the fact that they didn't have any criminal record, uh, they had not had any issues, and every time they did that, uh, it was objected to by the government uh, Matthew Kirsch uh, and the judge sustained the objection uh, I'm curious to know why if, a go if the government comes in the prosecution comes in and says these guys are liars they're criminals they're this they're that why would they not be allowed to say at their ages we have never been in trouble with the law in an opening statement. We've never been arrested. We've never been charged with any crimes. Uh, it shows the premeditated actions by Judge Arguello and the government of the United States to ensure that the jury could not hear anything <coughs> that was positive about the RP5. And the bottom line is a juror would have pondered Probably more than one juror would have pondered if these guys are in this courtroom without any criminal record. They've never been charged with a crime. They've been doing this type of work for quite some time, never been charged, no criminal record whatsoever. Is it not uh, probably possible and most likely that they're going to think, well, why would these guys just wake up one morning and do this? It doesn't stand the reason with common sense. And everything, this is why what Judge Arguello did here and allowed in her court is so egregious. How do you let defendants come in and not be allowed to tell their side? And that's exactly what happened here. The prosecution presented a theory of a case based upon absolutely zero facts. Zero facts. And they were allowed to, one after the other, Statements made to really discredit the IRP-5. And then when the IRP-5 says, wait a minute, we have a right to counter that statement. You're going to tell me the judge says, you're not gonna, we're not going to allow that? And a lot of it was about 
breaking what we were saying to stop the flow because I'm looking at during my uh, opening statement at one point I said you're going to come back and say not guilty I wish the word was innocent because I truly believe that's what we are objection your honor sustained I'm just saying that you're going to come back and, and say that we're not guilty but the word should be innocent that's in it totally cut the flow now you have an argument between Kirsch, myself, and the judge to argue the objection, and then you have to start over again. And as you go through and read the transcript of opening statements, you see that that's what's happening, is what Kirsch is doing is he's doing everything he can to break your flow that changes how the jury sees what you're saying. That's unbelievable. And the job of the judge uh, is to allow equal opportunity for both sides in the courtroom this is what is so this is what is so troubling not every five we're not asking for any special favors can I just say who I am that's not that's not putting evidence on what's been allowed or not allowed to say I'm a man at the age of whatever age I am And because the prosecution has attacked my character, let me tell you who I am in my opening statement. We've heard a lot of opening statements in courtrooms and cases that maybe one didn't agree with the other, but they had a right to say who they were. You have defendants who were basically eyewitnesses. Uh, were actually basically witnesses who defended themselves in murder trials clear and cut they killed a whole bunch of people but they they come to represent themselves in the court do you know they're given more latitude in an opening and a closing statement than what the RP5 were given nobody objected they actually saw this man shoot a bunch of people on a train and when he got up to do his opening he was allowed to say who he was He was allowed to say, my name is so-and-so. I've been accused of this and that. But I'm not that kind of person. This is a person who's a madman who clearly was seen gunning down people. And you're telling me, as we said at this table tonight, that the IRP-5 was not afforded simply to say, This is my name and my age. This is what I've done in the professional arena for many, many years, and I've never been charged with a crime. This is why I'm here today, to defend myself and to speak on my own behalf that I'm not a criminal, and the things that you will hear in this courtroom today are absolutely untrue. Well, my, Should I be allowed to say that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is if these any of these men were allowed to go and actually speak to you their character speak to who they are and actually present it as facts which it is then it would completely blow out any theory which is again what they were com- convicted with it would blow any theory of wrongdoing uh, by these men completely out of the water have one upstanding person on a, on a group okay have five or six completely upstanding IT executives on the exact same team driving towards the exact same purpose and you're going to say that they're all co-conspirators in this thing it's just, it's, it doesn't happen. It is absolutely unbelievable to me 
that that is even possible in a courtroom that I cannot say who I am yep. and that I maintain my innocence in an opening statement of a case? But I mean, as, as D- David alluded to earlier, I mean, it, regardless of what anybody thinks, it's guilty until proven innocent, not the, not the reverse. But if you're guilty to prove it innocent, let's say that's the case, which I believe it to be. What's the harm in me saying I'm, this is my name and my age and I've never been convicted of, of a crime? How's that wrong? Because it, it's, it's going to make them, it's going to make it more difficult it's, for them to vilify you. It's going to make the jury think. Yep. But that's the point. And, and the point is you just, the judge just showed I'm picking a side. Yeah, exactly right. That, that supported us. It didn't support the government's case because the government needs the jury to be suspicious of us to, so they think, well, there was something going on here. There was some sort of conspiracy. So the judge just, the court just picked a side. That's all there is to it. This is opening statements. So a lot of, if you see a lot of opening statements, there's a lot of theater sometimes that go on. There was no theater going on here. This was just, we're stating the facts on who we are. We want you to know who, who, you are, who we are when we're trying to defend our case. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Those are the basics that you're allowed to say. And it's the presumption of innocence was is another joke. I have a right to say who I am and that I didn't do it. I'm allowed to plead not guilty to a crime that somebody saw a particular person commit in broad daylight. I have the right to go into a courtroom and say not guilty. But, and but you can even say that to this jury. Go ahead. Let's get into, now we'll get into, let's put what the government said. He said the choice, and I'm paraphrasing, the choice the IRP6 made that they agreed, they agreed to engage in a scheme, this is the conspiracy, to defraud various staffing companies uh, through false statements both in writing and orally in order to get free labor from those staffing companies. And over the course of the trial, you're going to learn that they got about $5 million worth of free labor from those staffing companies as a result of the lies they told. This was Matthew Kirsch's opening statement. That's his statement. Yeah, so now as we get ready to unpack some of this, uh, let's just go to the first thing. We signed staffing agreements, contracts, that were provided by the staffing company. So, and we underwent credit and due diligence checks before they would extend us credit to staff. Okay, okay so where, if you, if they hand you a contract, their contract, and you dupe them, how did you dupe them when they handed you their contract and, and conducted a credit check on your company? So that this is this is where this whole thing starts. So when you really and government has all of this information of the staffing agreements that we signed and agreed to pay. So if you sign any sort of contract, civil contract, and you don't pay, you're subject to civil litigation, not criminal litigation. Right. So this is where uh, the major uh, sticking point of this whole case that should have never been brought was this was a civil matter where the corporate corporate officer signed to receive credit uh, was extended credit 
force uh, the people that were staffed at the company to do work at the company. There's there's no allegation by the government that the people did not perform the work. They didn't come and say, well, this person wasn't qualified, that we put a janitor in the position of a software developer and got paid. That would have been criminal fraud. None of that was alleged by the government. So this is where we're at at the beginning of the trial where the government's talking about we duped these people out of $5 million. Now, what you'll find is this is sort of an opening statement uh, here on the radio. What you'll find as we go through as we go through the transcripts is that all of the witnesses said, yeah, well, these witnesses that were put on the stand by the government said, well, I didn't make the decision. The, our credit department made the decision on whether or not we would do business with them. Well, then where are the the falsified credit applications it says you defrauded through a credit app because that's what they got or where's the email that said we told them something fraudulent the government claimed that this stuff was written and orally but written in oral communications but he only brought in uh, government witnesses to lie about what they were told yet we had contradictory information uh that impeached uh those exact statements that they were telling the government because they originally responded to the government in writing. So that's so this is where we're at at this point where the government says that uh, we lied to get free labor. And as, as we go through the government's presentation of its case, you'll find that virtually all these witnesses, well, I didn't make the decision. Well, then who did we deceive? It's certainly exactly. Certainly if we deceived or lied, the person who we lied to should have been on the stand. Well, here's the issue. Let's just say it's one thing. The RP5 didn't, didn't draw up the contract. The contract was drawn up by the staff and company, which means they could have put any language protecting their best interests that they, that they wanted to. Right. So What's bizarre about this, the RP5 simply conducted business. They didn't make the contract where they could have eased something in. Or we, what did you say the word they used uh, that you get did to the staffing companies? Defrauded? Defrauded or you, you, you duped. duped. How do I dupe someone when I didn't make the contract? And, and traditionally, if, and, and that's to the point you're, you're making, if it was our contract and we had deceptive language in there, yes, that's fraudulent. This was not our contract. This was, this was we agreed to terms from the staffing agency. So at that point, there is no duping. We're saying, give us the terms that you will do business with us. We'll agree. And, and you signed and, off on it. And next keep point. something in mind. Let me just interject one thing. We were turned down by a lot of staffing companies because of our credit, and they didn't want to take the risk. So just keep that in mind. There are there are staffing companies that says, okay, we'll do business with, with you. You're risky. You're a small business. And this happens. Everybody evaluates risk when going into business, especially with a small company, because a lot of us, that might be over 50% of small companies fold anyway. So right. go ahead, Kendrick. And, and just what the next point is, the fact is we were, the civil remedy was there. We put out ourselves as personal guarantee, guarantors, if something goes wrong, you have the right to sue us. That's the remedy. 
So then why does the government at this point feel the need to, hey, this is a civil matter. This is business to business. They're agreeing to this company's terms. Let us step in because now there's some there's some criminality. Here. It doesn't make any sense. Well, Kendrick actually brought up a good point. The um, personal guarantee. When that came up in court, the argument Kirsch made was that was in furtherance of the crime, that they put their own own uh, liability in place that was to further the crime. You know how stupid that sounds? Yep. It's, it's ludicrous because my name was put on most of those documents. But uh, if it's saying that, I, look, this is why the staffing company said, look, they may be a risk, but they're taking responsibility. Ex- that exactly. if something didn't proceed forward as thought, you can come after me for whatever money there is. To me, it solidifies the case of the RP5's innocence. Who's going to do that if they're trying to defraud somebody? And They're not going to use that language, come after me? Man. They're just going to pre- present themselves as a sacrificial lamb for the heck of it. So you're going to just, in essence, destroy your ability, your credit, and everything else because they can come after you. All this stuff goes on your own credit that yeah. you, you're you in debt to all of these companies. And we were, we knew we were going to pay the bills. Uh, and obviously, we get overcome by certain uh, certain business events and certain interference from the government that we that that caused us not to be able to satisfy those debts. And at any time, we could have just filed bankruptcy, moved on, and got rid of this. But that's that was not the intent. The intent was we knew we had a product that would sell, and that we would be able to pay any debt that we had. And and I'm going to bring this up. I'm going to get the exact quotes from the the lead FBI agent, man by the name of John Smith. Who knows if he was even an FBI agent with that common name? Right. But he said on two occasions during hearings and trial that if we had a paid our bills, we wouldn't be criminally charged right now. So he admitted, oh, well, you guys should have just pay, paid the debt and you guys w- w- wouldn't be, be here right now with criminal charges. Well, those two things don't, those two things are inconsistent. They can never come together. Either we, either it's a civil case or it's a criminal case. And the fact the statement was made that had the bills Twice. been paid, we wouldn't be here. Well, you're not supposed to be here if it's about a bill. Exactly. So that's the FBI agent obviously didn't mean to say that. And he said it under oath. Uh, but this is the type of stuff. So the judge is aware of this. The judge is aware of this statement. The prosecutor is aware, aware of this statement. The prosecutor is aware that this is a debt case. Yet he continued to pursue us criminally, cherry pick through our emails, and tie together and try to make it look like something uh, untoward was going on. What's the amount of debt that they claimed? Five million is what they claimed. All right, Tanik, share your findings real quick. This this is going to bring some perspective. So one thing before I uh, mention that, I saw uh, online that it says uh, that most small and medium-sized businesses, 70% of them owe debt. Why? 70%. Because, because they're starting out, uh, you're making bills, you don't have money to pay them, that's natural. But what I thought was crazy when he's talking about $5 million, uh, they were talking about the top 10 uh, companies who owe the most money. Uh, Volkswagen is number one in the entire world. 
they have a debt of $192 billion. Um, and and why the fault of theirs uh, kind of correlate is that they produced a car that uh, the exhaust system, something was wrong with it. Mm-hmm. So it messed up millions of cars. And because of that, they owe a lot of money. But they've, incurred, so, they've incurred debt. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Sometimes things happen that cause you to, to incur debt, right? right? And right. then AT&T is number two at $176 billion. Toyota, $138 billion. There's nobody on this list that even Comes reaches close. millions. It's all billions of dollars. Walmart, $63 billion. Um, CBS, $81 billion. Comcast, $104 billion. But, Tanique, to your point, that's Whoa. why we would say... A small black African American company in Colorado Springs, five million, well, doing business while so you see the discrepancies as we well, know the, the the difference between why why well if if that's the case why is the government going after them well well why didn't they well, go after big. Volkswagen because they said they knew when it was on the product line that that exhaust system that they done was messed up and well, they said they you, reproduced them anyway so why aren't they in jail for selling us cars that were that they knew I'll tell you right now what the answer to that question is. They're too big. Yeah, and that's right. And and we actually, when we'll be able to get into some of the cross-examination of the government's witnesses and what they actually admitted to at trial, and you, you're going to be uh, shocked. Um, one I'm looking at right now was a company called Technosource, and, and they were asked, actually was asked by me because we were pro se, uh, I asked. I asked that Miss Carter. This lady's name was well, was Miss Carter from from Technostores. I can't see her first name right now. I said, in engaging in a business, initiating a business relationship with IRP Solutions, can you explain a little bit about what Technostores relied on? Remember, the government to engage in business with to to engage in that relationship. Remember, the government saying we duped them. Now I'm asking the witness on the stand, what did you do to engage? Uh, and she said, and, and she responds, are you asking what background we did prior to? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, she answers from a credit, you know, from a credit standpoint, we did a credit bureau check and a Dun & Bradstreet check. I say, okay. And, and she says, that's what I did. Okay. So where is the... Defrauding. The defrauding. If you base your decision on your background check, on on your your internal credit check, which is what everybody goes through. You, right. If you go apply for a credit card right now, they conduct a credit check. So this is just the first example, and these are all the government witnesses. We'll begin to, as we go through trial, break down how we impeached all of their witnesses because they they provided this information in writing. So what you'll start to see is the conviction really makes no sense from a jury when all of the witnesses are saying the same thing well um uh she said and then i said and what were the results of that credit check to miss carter she said there was no it was limited information however there was no derogatory information mm. and i and i and then i would ask her and would you say TechnoSource relies on that information on whether or not they're going to engage in business with the client and she says at that time that was part of the process in order to begin a relationship with the new cu- customer. So that's, and you'll see, you will see this mantra repeated over and over again by each company. And that's where the government's case just 
was not a case there was no crime because these people as any business does does background checks bank checks and credit checks to determine whether or not they're going to engage in business with you and they made a decision to do so they do and in essence and one final note i'll say you can't go to the bank right now and ask them for a personal loan say go well i need ten thousand dollar personal loan well 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 I make, but I, I want that loan based on the fact that I make uh, $200,000 a year. Well, you have to, we got to check and make sure you make that kind of money. Then we're going to check and see if you pay your bills. And then the bank will make a determination whether or not they're going to extend credit. And that's, that, that, that's the essence of the government, of, of this case. Well, we're going to get into that more. Um, I'm still looking for a crime. Can't find it. The reason is there never was one. That's the injustice suffered by the RP5. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they've faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in a Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States. I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. 
Won't you join us? Call today. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prison and in federal prison. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. My nephew Joshua was 13 when he was killed in 2001. Was living with me at the time. He asked me, can I go by Billy's house? I thought, well, you know, what's the harm in that? You know? My mistake was I assumed that there was a parent home. I assumed his father had his weapon properly secured. The kid had removed the magazine, so the kid was sure that the gun was safe. And he, what he didn't know was there was a bullet chamber. Joshua had this fear of weapons because he lost his mother to gun violence. I think this kid really pulled the trigger to show Joshua that, that it was not dangerous. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to tell my mom we have to bury her grandson. The pain was so great, we just wanted to do something positive. And we also wanted to try to prevent families from experiencing the same pain that this put my family through. We began working with the End Family Fire campaign. Family Fire is the accidental shooting of a family member with a weapon that was improperly secured, improperly stored. It's a difficult conversation for people. You don't want to ask or say anything to your neighbors because you don't want to offend them. But there are important things we should know where are they going when they play? <laughs> what is the environment of that home? We have to understand that children are inquisitive, they're curious. And there's not one corner of the house that they haven't gone through. If you're a gun owner, you have to make sure your weapon is inaccessible. It will save the family from the pain and the trauma that my family's put through. Because once that happens, it's forever. 
And if I could prevent one family from experiencing that, then his life will have some purpose. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. The number is 646-200-0628. We are aware that most of our listeners are online, uh, but if you want to take a minute and call into the show uh, to give your thoughts on what we've heard thus far on this show as we are in our final push in concluding the case of injustice against the IRP-5, that number again is 646-200-0628. And uh, as we come back now... Um, now, uh, guys, we are at the point where what we've heard thus far is absolutely horrible. Um, and Judge Arguello, Judge Christine Arguello, should be held accountable for her conduct. Um, I don't care whether she retires or does what she does. What you've done in this case in affecting the lives of these innocent men uh, should be on your record. And never allowed to do any type of uh, uh, advisement or honorary positions uh, that you might be a teacher of those in the law that are coming in the system. Uh, you're the last person they need to talk to. Uh, this is absolutely horrendous uh, that basically a one-sided case, theory of a case, uh, at that and again, as we were talking before the break, uh, we still have no crime pinpointed. Not even so you could say, well, maybe this is why or maybe this is why it went this way. You have nothing here. Absolutely nothing. And as I said on the, during the break, uh, the prosecution, the government's witnesses solidified the innocence of the IRP-5. They cannot call one thing out to say anything wrong that the RP5 did. And to go as far as to say, well, we did a, a uh, credit check and there was, nothing, what's the, what's the, there was nothing negative on the credit report that, no. would, that would impede them from and doing business with the RP5. Well, and other companies, as I said earlier, would not do business with us, whether it be a lack of a credit profile 
small business, not enough uh, uh, history, mo- mo- history, not enough money in the bank, uh, not enough liquid that that they were comfortable doing business with us, and which that, was fine. And that's their so we so we would apply or go to another company and talk about them doing business with us, and that's how the process worked. Personal or business, it works that way. If I can't get a loan at First Bank, well, maybe I can go to South Central Bank downtown, and they approve me. That's okay. And so the issue was, it is just, it, it is beyond words how ridiculous. This sounds that you guys were even hauled into a court for absolutely nothing. And then it was enhanced by the conduct of this judge and this government prosecutor. Go ahead. Well, those credit applications, if you look at the credit applications, if there was anything that was inaccurate on there, that would have brought up, been brought up in court, and there you have your mail or wire fraud. False information lied, was given, False information. Right? But that, those weren't even presented in court. Because it didn't happen. Right. Yeah, and now, um, and like I said, keep in mind, we're reading to you from court transcripts. Uh We did business with a company called Idea Integration. Uh, A man by the name of Mel Castleberry, he's the president of the region. So you don't dupe people with these sorts of credentials who's been doing this business for decades. So uh, Mr. Castleberry is being cross-examined. He actually came to the IRP office to meet with us about a investing in IRP in staffing. Where's the duping on that? We're asking you, let's partner up. You invest in, in our staffing. Uh, in the staffing, we go through, we do, we share the revenue. Now, and this is this is Mel Casper in court, the president of the region. I was asked by Vince Rosales, which is another so. Uh, uh, employee official at his company to accompany him to a meeting at the IRP offices in Colorado Springs to explore a business partnership. Uh, I asked him, did he agree to a business partnership set forth in meeting? He said there was nothing decided in the meeting, Mr. Casbury said. And uh, he said a contractual agreement. This is Mr. Casbury. A contractual agreement was entered into three months later. So I asked him, so it's your testimony that regarding uh, that no business between IRP Solutions and Idea Integration was engaged in for three months. Um, He said, so if the business proposal, I asked him about the business proposal. We permitted a business proposal to him. He said, I was very clear in the meeting in January that Idea Integration was in no position to make any investments to IRP. So he forced the issue that if we were going to do business with Idea Integration, you're going to have to sign our staffing agreement and agree to those terms. We really didn't want to to do those terms. We wanted to go into a partnership. That way we can kind of go forward together, we can staff, we can finish what the government was asking us to do. He could staff and we could continue to go. He chose not to do that and gave us his agreement and we signed it. Where was the duping of the government in uh, of that staffing company 
in, you just heard his testimony. Where was the duping in that? He turned down a business proposal and provided us with a contract. How was he duped? And there's, or, and there's no false statements in there. There's no lies. It's a business negotiation. Exactly. I mean, look, if, if anything was going to be defrauded or the sign of fraud, it's happening from the beginning to the end. There is no pattern of behavior here in any way. You you got staffing companies saying, well, let's talk about, they're telling you this, these are the terms. Again, it's not the terms set by the RP5. These are the terms. You sign up on the terms by the staffing companies. You're saying, okay, you go a step further to show that you're not playing any games and say, we'll absolve all responsibility financially if for any reason the staffing companies are not paid. Right. I do not understand, and I'm not supposed to, because if it made, if it made sense, we wouldn't be here. It makes absolutely no sense. So when you sit here and begin to think about it, it's like, what in the world is going on? Corruption. African-American, you can say what you want to say about it. This is a majority African-American group of men, along with one Italian-American, uh, that was targeted because they produced a product. They produced a product that no one could produce. The big Fortune 500 companies could not put together the software that the RP5 did. They couldn't touch it. So what do we do? You got people in the in the in the trenches saying, "Man, they came up with this. What can we do?" Well, just check this out. Now you can start. The public can start to rationally conclude that this small company had this unbelievable product that the government wanted and they had to get rid of the competition. There, you can rationally conclude that they called on their friends in the government to go after us and in an essence to get rid of the competition, destroy their company, destroy who these men are because this is our money and this is the way the United States system works. A big company uh, using the government and its relationships with the government to come in and destroy a company so so they can ensure that they, they're able to get the money from the government and the, and the contract and the business from the government. That is the essence of, of what, in my opinion, is what, what happened here. Without question, it's what happened. And the bottom line is uh, you should be able to figure that out. Doesn't take a lot to figure that. It's common sense to see that this company, this organization, was a target. These five, uh, these African Americans, majority, were targeted because of their race. And we're not going to give. I believe there was was it 19 modules here for this software. There's quite a few. I can't remember the exact number. Close right to that now. number, and one module, I believe, if I've heard it correct, and correct me, David, if I'm wrong, or any of you guys was right around the sum of $100 million. Well, that was two modules we agreed to to sell for $100 million, with one of them being near $90 million. So look at, look at, I want you to look at the math here. The money to be made here is exceeding a billion dollars, roughly, possibly. No, DHS admitted to that. Over a billion dollars? Yes. 
And you think there are people, this is a disgrace. At what cost does racism and racially targeting a company? Because you didn't have the idea that they had. Well, and it, go, it goes not only to that normal racism, but the color of green. Uh, yep. Uh, not only you're being racially targeted, but we cannot possibly, you, this money, the greed for money is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, and that's exactly what happened there. And like I said, we're going to continue to go down and I, I want to talk to a couple towards a couple of pull the transcripts on a couple of people when the government was cross-examining uh, the, their own witness and got shocked by what the witness said because he didn't say what the government wanted him to say. Mm-hmm. So one of those guys' name was Donald Crockett with a company called Computer Task Group. Um, so the government's asking him what was he told about IRP solutions. Uh, or he says... Now, the government had alleged that we said we had a current or impending contract. We lied about having a current or impending contract with the government, which that lie induced these companies into doing business with us. Now, this is, <coughs> excuse me, this is the government's own witness asking, what did the men at I, the IRP5 tell you about uh, the company? Uh, he said he talked about, this was actually Demetrius Harbor, he talked about their they're supporting applications for the criminal justice system. That's what was told. There was nothing about a current impending conduct. So remember, the government has approved what he put in the indictment and what the false statement was. So his own witness is actually saying here, well, he said, I didn't get a lot of detail. I know that one of the applications he talked about was Corba. That was the main software. That's a software component and not a lot and not a lot more about the interrelationships uh, between uh, the the contractor and a subcontractor um and he said what was explained the question was asked was did they say who company that they were had a contract with or whatever like that he said no they really uh, didn't mention companies in specific but he said that they were pursuing business with new york so there's pursuing there's no uh, we have this contract in place. This, this is what the government alleged to the jury. This is what he told the jury in opening statements. And this is what the indictment says, that that we duped these companies by lying about having a contract, and that's what induced them to do business now. And, well, just, and that, just to, that statement, induced to do business, that's not a bad thing. Right. That's everybody. I'm trying to. It's called a sales deal. Yeah, Wendy's is inducing me to buy a hamburger. How is that a crime? Right. <laughs> so now now the government, Matthew Kirsch asked, he said, did you have an understanding after that conversation about whether or not there was business in place with New York? He says no. Well, in the indictment, Kirsch said that they, that the prosecutor, federal prosecutor said that they had made lied about having business with New York. This guy says no. Um, and then he said, and the government asked him, did you have any expectation that the relationship might lead to more profitable business? And the answer was, that was the reason I extended them credit. It was more like an investment. So this guy, who's a, who's a vice president at this company says, we're treating this as an investment that might lead to more profitable business. How, this is how business is done. How was that handled on cross? 
Well, uh, Mr. Yes, in part. I'll, I'll, I'll pull that up we'll while, that while up. you talk. My, yeah, my, my right. and, and to that point, Mont, uh, <clears throat> we asked the question on, 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 a, on a different cross-examination. And to this point, you know, again, you, you start questioning. So if a contract was mentioned, I, I asked the question personally, would it matter if the contract was worth $10 or a million, uh, $10 million? The answer was no. So I came back and said, so you, if, if a w- contract was discussed... You're telling, I said, you're telling me it does not make a difference if the contract was for $10? No, it doesn't make a difference. Absolutely, it does. <laughs> and to, to, again, this is the absurdity again. If Because they would say, Demetrius told me they had a contract. So, so when I crossed them, I said, well, doesn't it matter the amount of the contract? That's the next question. If I have a contract, how much is it worth? Oh, it doesn't matter, Mr. Well, See, guess what? The- I didn't mean to interrupt you, Demetrius, yeah. but guess what? If I'm getting $10 return versus $10 million, guess what? I'm gonna be on every plane to whatever place you are exactly to Lamont. close it's that contract. <laughs> and I, guess what? I'll eat the cost of the plane, of the hotel stay, wherever. It doesn't matter because guess what? As David said, I'm investing in something that has the appearance to be going somewhere, which should have automatic. So you're the one that did the cross on this guy. Not, not on the, no, not on, I'm just saying on the on the other cross examination yeah, on, on several yeah. of them because that was the crux of Matthew Kirch's uh, allegation that there was a contract that was so. Of course, if the contracts keep getting thrown around, does it matter to you uh, uh, if the contract was ten million or no? It doesn't. But that makes absolutely ev- again. That's a lie. Virtually every time they said the witnesses said there was a contract, they had provided something to the government in writing because the government, the lead investigator, asked for to send all information on their dealing business dealings with IRP. None of that stuff was mentioned in the vast majority of, that. just like I said, we're pursuing a contract as Donald Crockett said that they were told we were pursuing. So th- that's not a lie. We were pursuing a contract. So if we are pursuing business we are legitimate in what we are but doing. We're, we were honest in what we said That's we don't saying. have a contract the the weird witness just said we were pursuing business well how many companies or organizations gonna say man we're hoping to close this deal that's exactly. pursuit. That's in yes. pursuit of a contract or new business. So I'm going to pursue the business because if we close this contract we pay bills we pay bills and by the by the by the government's own witness who says this is why I wanted to invest is because they were pursuing business what in New York you have got to be that's why this is absolutely absurd and unreal and how is that free labor because if he's investing one an investment's always a risk Two, he's like, hey, you know what? I'm willing to put spend, money into. Yeah, I'm willing to put some some skin in the game, invest, extend some credit, because you know what? They're going to do some business, and I'm I'm looking for further business. This is at no time was this guy like, hey, you know what? Uh, they gave me a contract, and it looks fishy, and there's there's falsehoods in there, and that's how I went into business. No, this okay. is this is a business discussion. The guys is he's you know we're going to invest and do business. To see where this goes. Let me make sure I'm clear on this, and y'all can help me with this. If I am willing to invest money into the game, don't you know there's a vetting process that I'm going to vet these individuals 
and whatever their product is, it has caught my attention that this is something going somewhere. Yeah, one person actually said that they invest in these type of companies because they don't want to. They might. They don't want to miss out on the what might be the next Microsoft. That's th- that, that was, was stated. That was stated. This is business. This point. <laughs> this is just business. This is business. There's not criminal here. No. And if if I'm a you if I cannot be allowed to be a salesman of my product, it is my job to sell my product. Well, and this it, it's a good segue into. I'm put, bringing one more transcript in here. This is a good segue. This is a, on cross examination. By a man named Scott Tate with a deco. This is the trans. This is court transcripts. I want to say that this is just not us making stuff up. So Scott Tate said, "You stated you were involved in the decision-making process as far as agreeing to extend service services." He Scott says, "Yes, I was." And since you stated that, uh, did uh, you stated that a deco did not have a credit verification process? What factors came into play? When your group was discussing whether or not to enter into a relationship. This is another guy at the vice president level, Scott Tate was. He says, Mr. Banks was quite, well, he put on a good show. He made a believer out of me. And the question was, can you elaborate, Mr. Tate, on what you mean by he put on a good show? Uh, He answered he was very good at articulating where he was going to go and what was going to happen and the possibility possibility of all of us making money. So Mr. Banks outlined a plan for successfully selling and marketing their product in order to do what he said. His answer, yes. And in the process of describing to you what that plan was, can you give me some details on what he said would be done? And what was a part of the good show, as you call it? Mr. Tate says he produced magazine articles. We were in law enforcement magazine, technology magazine, and police magazine. So that that's just uh, for... He threw names around. Mayor Webb at the time was the mayor of Denver we had met with, obviously. And he said he had contacts within the FBI. We did. We actually had FBI people working on the software. Uh, And so the statement that he had contacts with these people was made. Did he infer that that somehow constituted a contract with the agency? His answer, no. Your answer. No, his answer. His his answer was no. No, because remember, the government said we said we had a Kerner and Penny contract. Yep. Um. Uh, he said, you made the call from how many other colleagues? That's what he was asked. They said, myself, I am in charge. Uh, I am the area. Uh, I think that's a mispron. So he was asked, so you were solely responsible for that decision? He says, yes. And considering that proposition that Mr. Banks was making to you, did you get into the risks uh, inherent in a company you knew very little about? His 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 response. Everything is a risk. As Kendrick was saying, this was a little more risky, but at, at but I felt at the time the information given and the ending payout that w- that it was worth the risk. Case closed. Case closed. If the if there was ever an opportunity for the judge to say we are going to adjourn to dismiss all charges against the RP five. And keep in mind, we asked the judge at the end of this. the prosecution putting on all of these witnesses that were impeached and making these type of statements to dismiss the charges because the government hadn't proved his case. She still wouldn't dismiss it. What was her response? I'm just not going to do it? She just didn't do it, no. Because she, all, see, she knows the game. She knows the way juries are manipulated. 
She knows that the government can continue to manipulate the jury, continue to cherry pick, and that she didn't ultimately let let some of this evidence in to the jury room so so she could guarantee our conviction. Boy, this is unbelievable. You're saying the innocence of the RP5 into the case of the government. This is not defense. It's the government's the case. The case is being proven on behalf of the RP5's innocence with the stupidity and ignorance of the prosecution of the government. He wasn't stupid. Um, this, the prosecutor wasn't ignorant to any of these facts. What I mean is, is that how do you put on witnesses if you're trying to manipulate a case? You bring people, nobody usually brings witnesses on their side to solidify the innocence of the defense. Well, he couldn't help it because he was asking. He was uh, really wanted them to to lie, and then he was going to suborn suborn perjury when they lied. This is what was going on here. Then when they got caught slipping, and these witnesses, he wasn't expecting these he witnesses. He didn't expect it. He didn't expect it. So there's no way he could get it back. So he just kept going down the road. So the judge still allowed him to go forward, knowing that juries convict people all the time. all the time. Who are who are innocent, and she was going to allow it in her courtroom, and then she she had to know ahead of time. I can't allow this stuff to go to the jury and to remind them of what these witnesses actually said. So she uh, she stopped the, this sort of uh, evidence from going back to the jury, uh, and that's what she did down the road. So let me make sure I'm clear. On the record, there were things said as as you've told us tonight. She did not allow. Was that mentioned in closing, or was that not allowed? No. To, to David's point, I do remember she said something. I'm paraphrasing. When every time David impeached a witness, we tried to get that granted, and she said something around the line. Well, since you impeached the the witness, there's no need to put that on uh, the record. On, it was for, for the truth of the matter asserted, or something. She said right. along it was, those it, lines. It's legal legal talk to say, in essence. Everyone in the sh- uh, in, in the uh, in the court the show the show again sees that you impeached it. But when we try to get that piece to say, "Hey, we impeached Mrs. But, Slaky," we inter- that would not. But be not only that, um, some documents that we impeached them with, she wouldn't allow those to go back. And these were documents they admitted to that but, they provided to the government on what they gave the government. She never allowed it to go back to the jury. And eight years in prison, we as a result of this judge's uh, malfeasance. Because I'll tell you, there was enough evidence just with what has been said tonight. It's not been a lot. More than enough to have the case dismissed. And we've only missed three or four witnesses. There's probably another 12 but they not, did practically the same thing. And none of the witnesses said that they, they, they signed business because of a contract. That's the crux of their cases that we told them. We had a, a contract with the government. But you not were pursuing one, business. Exactly. Not right. one person that took the stand said, you know what? Right. Uh, they told me I had a contract. The closest they got was one guy. He said imminent. That still doesn't say we got a contract. Let me tell you something. And I know this from experience in sales <laughs> through the years. It's called a strong close. That's what it's called. It is, as a salesman, I have to believe when I do a sale. Now, we still got to sign off on it and verify. 
but the cell is solid. And if the cell is solid, that's all I need. So if I think I, I'm going to be getting contracts based upon this product, I'm supposed to believe that. And when I go apply for credit, I'm applying for credit based upon what we forecast as future business that will come to my organization. Is that fair? That's fair. So even if you guys said, hey, man, we got some contracts. We're hoping to close, man. We had a good conversation with so-and-so company, this company, whatever. We're confident. That is sales. But keep in mind, the government, uh, we're talking about just a trial in discovery. And we pointed it out to the government in a proffer. He has me on record saying working towards uh, obtaining a contract and trying to secure a contract. So he has this into statements to staffing companies. Now, on top of that, you're seeing what these witnesses are saying in court, his own witnesses. And yet the judge under those circumstances still would not. The government should never brought the case to begin with. And the judge clearly should have should have dismissed this case when the government didn't prove it. And all these witnesses got caught lying. I mean, and to not allow the jury to overlook those documents and statements, it would have been it, it would have automatically put in the jurors' mind, these people are not being honest. These people are being railroaded. It would have given that impression because that's exactly what it was. This is what makes the conduct of Judge Arguello and the government so very egregious. It is, it is, it is uncomprehendable that that type of evidence, that type of information to be supplied to a jury would be denied. That's just a great abuse of power. That is, that is abuse in a way I cannot wrap my hands around And they it. knew when she sentenced, then later after Judge Arguello had all this stuff, she sentenced us to... 11 years, 10 and 11 years in prison. And knowing with full knowledge of what it went on in this trial that she should have dismissed it, went all the way through, let the jury, uh, the Sadish, uh, just juries that will believe anything that the government spends, let them convict, and she sent us to prison and imposed those type of, uh, literally a draconian sentence. I mean, the, Absolutely. The, the January 6th writers got less time than that. Yeah, we might as well just uh, try to overthrow the government. That's, when, a, that's over the top. And when you look at those sentences, numerous legal experts looked at this case and said, even if they did what they say they did, these sentences are outrageous. Well, they were outrageous. I can tell you that right now. I have, through my wrongful conviction, I knew people that had attempted murder that walked in less time than what they gave the RP5. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming, our back is against the wall on this show. And I'll tell you what, we're just getting started as we go down. We are in the courtroom now. This information is absolutely informative uh, and needs to be heard. We're going to take a quick break before we come back to our final segment. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. 
Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail, about half of 1%. Less than 1%. That doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than one in 100 Americans are currently in jail, but for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about one in four. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic as poor black communities lack so many of their members. But what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal. But there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself in the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted, and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind, but people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates, and lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised. Despite noble intentions, politics often does not affect the basic incentives of costs and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. 
Call or just calls today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Every year, almost 40 children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle. In 70 degree weather, it takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven. At 104 degrees, heat stroke begins, followed by loss of consciousness. Yeah. Should go an hour and a half or so. child live without them forever look before you lock brought to you by kids in cars back ladies and gentlemen to the journey of the RP5 I have sat in this chair for quite some time I can tell you I am deeply saddened by what we have heard tonight um, and it's nothing new. When you hear this story, the actions of Judge Christine Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, John Walsh, are criminal. It's criminal. It is a miscarriage of justice that happened to the RP5. David Banks Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Clinton Stewart. Very troubled by what we've heard tonight, and we've heard it before. But the egregious behavior by court officials is unbelievable. But it's believable because we lived it. Eight years to the RP5 who did absolutely nothing wrong. You would have to go after thousands of companies who have incurred debt if you follow the protocol of what you did to the RP5. 
as Tanique shared with us the Fortune 500 companies, the debt in the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. No charges. But you get some African-Americans together and create something that the best, whose society is deemed the best in this field, could not produce. So rather than embrace the product, but the hard work and the sleepless nights carried on by these men, we choose a path of destruction to shut them down. Got news for you, they're free tonight. And it is our mission, it is our purpose to uncover injustice wherever we find it. And that's with these men, other cases all across this country where a judge plays God in their own twisted mind. We will continue to seek justice. The RP5 story continues the journey of injustice as we get further into this trial. Happens next week. This is AJC Radio. Until next time, America, good night.